You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The only leverage you have over your family, your family of origin, your biological family, Perhaps your landed entitled family is your presence. If they can't treat you with respect, if they can't treat your partner or partners with respect, you're going to have to use that leverage. You're going to have to absent yourself. You can attend whatever family events you care to, Christmases, funerals, weddings, but don't feel obligated to show up when you know, when it's been made clear to you again and again, that you will be judged, shamed, manipulated, mistreated, or abused. You don't have to accept an invitation to get punched in the face. You don't even have to RSVP. In case you fell and hit your head a week ago, Prince Harry, second son of Prince Charles, grandson of Queen Elizabeth, once third in line for the throne of the United Kingdom. Prince William was the heir. Harry was the spare until William and Kate started having kids. And yes, it is stupid that the travails of this one family occupy so much of our collective cranial real estate. Anyway, Harry and Meghan... The Duke and Duchess of Sussex announced last week that they will be stepping back from their roles as senior members of the royal family and splitting their time between the UK and Canada in the future. Oh, and making their own money. Oh, and they reportedly didn't run this plan by grandma first. They just announced it on their shared Instagram account, blindsiding the rest of the royals with the news that Harry and Meghan weren't going to be as present in the future as they have been in the past. Now, I kind of doubt, I really do doubt, I'm not filleting myself here. I doubt that Harry and Meghan are listeners, but I got to say, they do seem to be following my go-to advice for adult children with shitty families. They're using the leverage they have, their presence, maybe in the hopes of leveraging better treatment out of their family and failing that, they won't have to show up to get punched in the face as much. Either way, whether they're taking my advice or not, they win. I have some advice for Canada too, also unsolicited. You see, Queen Elizabeth isn't just the queen of the United Kingdom. She's also the queen of Canada and a few other places you've probably heard of, like Australia. Anyway, Canada is a constitutional monarchy, and Elizabeth is the head of state, the sovereign, the monarch. She's on the 20 up there, and a majority of Canadians want to keep their constitutional monarchy. Maybe they look over the fence at our imperial presidency and think, yeah, no. But, quote, some Canadians question the relevance of the queen's position in Canada, writes the CBC in part because the nominal top official lives in another country and her position passes down to her descendants. It seems to me that if Canada wants to keep the monarchy, if it wants to remain a constitutional monarchy, if Canada wants to also rake in a brand new kind of tourism revenue, Canada might want to think about inviting Harry and Meghan to be the king and queen of Canada when Elizabeth, now 93 years old, passes away, found a Canadian royal family. Stick some actual royals in an actual palace and fly the maple leaf flag over it, troop the colors or whatever, and pick the pockets of the American tourists who will pay good money just to stand outside and watch. My pockets included. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show and no ads, author and podcaster John Moe joins us to talk about the hilarious world of depression. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, longtime fan, first time caller. I'm wondering, so I sometimes get horny like everybody else, and sometimes I want to masturbate just 
to help me fall asleep. So my question to you is this, is it inappropriate to masturbate next to your partner while they are sleeping in the actuality that you're not staring at them, you're not like involving them in any way, you're just kind of masturbating to help you fall asleep, but they happen to be next to you and they don't know about it. There's nothing inappropriate about having essentially an ambient wank next to your sleeping partner. There is, however, something potentially inconsiderate about having an ambient wank next to your sleeping partner. It could wake your sleeping partner up. If you are masturbating, if you know, your guy and jacking off, that makes the bed rock a little bit. I don't know your masturbatory technique or what it's like. Maybe it's more subtle and it doesn't involve that jacking motion that can rock a bed. But it's possible that your technique is such that potentially you could wake your partner. And it's also possible your partner's laying there awake, wasn't yet asleep, was trying to go to sleep, they, and they know you're masturbating and they feel rejected or excluded because you didn't initiate, you masturbated. So I would encourage you to have a conversation with your partner about your need for the occasional ambient wank. The fact that you don't want to or need to involve them in it in any way, that this is a utility wank, this isn't necessarily about desire or horniness, it's just to help you fall to sleep. And ask them to speak up if you're ever having an ambient wank and it disturbs them or wakes them. Uh, if it routinely wakes them, maybe it's been waking them all along and they just haven't said anything so they don't want to make you self-conscious, make you feel bad, you can excuse yourself and go lay in another room and have your ambient wank and then return to bed. If they would like to be involved, perhaps you could have an ambient wank together. Get your partner's buy-in to this really normal activity. A lot of people masturbate to relieve stress. A lot of people masturbate at night because it helps them fall asleep. It's a fine thing for you to masturbate for those reasons, but be considerate if there's someone laying next to you in bed that you're not disturbing their sleep. If a partner who's a light sleeper, a partner who has difficulty falling asleep, you having that wank that puts you to sleep could wake them up and it could be hours before they fall back to sleep. Just be considerate of your partner. And if your partner is Fine with it and on board. Enjoy your ambient wank. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 32-year-old straight female in a monogamous relationship of seven years. My issue is that lately, the last couple months, my female friend has been flirting with me pretty hardcore. And my boyfriend is totally in it and wants to uh, potentially open up our relationship and everything's great. However, I have this secret I guess in high school I was attracted to women and I asked one of my friends out and she told her mom who told my mom who threatened to follow me on campus to protect her from me threatened to pull me out of public school so I wouldn't be tempted and my dad told me if I did anything like that again I would be kicked out of the house flash forward to now I am really interested she seems really interested my boyfriend's interested but I feel like if I do this, everything's going to fall apart and I just feel kind of sick about it. Is there, is that common um, to, to be excited and sickened by the same thing? I don't know. It sounds kind of weird when I say it out loud. Um, and it's not something I feel comfortable talking about to either of them. When you say you're afraid that everything could fall apart if you do this, do you mean the relationship? Do you mean that this is going to dredge up the basically horrific homophobic shaming your parents subjected you to when you were a child and those threats and you're going to you're the one that's going to fall apart that you're going to have kind of a meltdown if you 
get in bed with a woman? Kind of all of the above. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> well, let's address them one by one. You know, your relationship could fall apart for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, I don't want to be Pollyanna about this. There are a lot of people out there where they have a three-way and something shifts or their partner is so interested in the third person that it destabilizes the primary relationship or it turns into an affair. Like all sorts of things could potentially go wrong. Those things can potentially go wrong in monogamous relationships too. People cheat, right? Right. And, and people have affairs and and things fall apart. And sometimes things fall apart for reasons that have nothing to do with sex. And, you know, sometimes things fall apart because you had a sexual adventure. Sometimes things fall apart because you aren't having sexual adventures. The, the relationship stagnates. Yeah. People get bored. They They feel like the only way I can ever – you know, really express myself sexually or, or have the freedom I want or the variety I want is to get out of this relationship and people will sabotage relationships to get that. So there are no guarantees and anything could fall apart at any time for all sorts of different reasons. A three-way could be a reason, but also, you know, being in a relationship where you can never have a three-way could potentially be a reason. That makes sense. That actually, yeah, that does make sense. So I think the questions you need to ask yourself if you're contemplating having a three-way are the questions everybody needs to ask themselves when they're contemplating having a three-way. What are you comfortable with? Are there certain sex acts you want to reserve just for you and your primary partner? So with the third person, it's just kind of oral and rolling around. Uh, if it's about you getting with a woman for the first time, is it about you and her and he observes and, and hangs back and it's not about his dick at all? Uh, you need to talk about what it is you want. With an understanding, you know, I think – that if it's successful that first time, if everyone's boundaries are respected, including your thirds, their desires have to be taken into account too. It has to work for them too. But if you know, boundaries are respected and it's sort of a limited repertoire that night, you may be more comfortable expanding those boundaries going forward. Now let's talk about your parents. Okay. <laughs> Fuck your parents. Have you ever asked them to apologize to you? No. <laughs> No, they would not. <laughs> what kind of relationship do you have with them now? Uh, I don't have any with my mom, but my dad, I talk to. And what are you gonna, uh, afraid is going to happen if you have sex with a woman? That they're somehow secretly going to know there's going to be a disturbance in the homophobic force and they're going to figure it out. <laughs> What's your concern? Well, I think it's just more like if it's more than just like one night. And it's like more like a relationship that they'll find out because it would be harder to hide. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be judged and shamed again. Yeah. You get to run your parents on a need to know basis and sometimes on a get to know basis. And if your parents are appalling homophobes still, and that's not something that you want to drill down on and get them to move on or change on, they don't need to know that you're seeing a woman that you're having three years with your boyfriend and other women, if it's other women and not this particular woman forever, if you get into a relationship with a woman, you're not, your mother's not in your life. And it sounds like you and your father talk occasionally. Those conversations with your dad aren't under oath. You're not being deposed. You don't have to tell him everything or offer up answers to questions he hasn't asked. And presumably he's not going to ask you whether you're eating a lot of pussy these days. <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> and, and I think you need to make that sort of psychological shift that all queers who were raised by homophobes and homophobic families, which, you know, for most of recorded human history was all queers. You have to make the shift to anger and away from terror that what was done to you was wrong 
and it was hateful and your parents were assholes and you're not going to let their prejudice and, and really the child abuse that they subjected you to limit you going forward. And some part of you is going to enjoy doing what you want despite the shame, the judgment, the bullying, the threats that you were subjected to. It's one way of looking at your life and saying, I am an adult with full control and full agency and I get to make my own choices and it's not up to my parents whose genitals I'm pressing my face into anymore. Yeah, I've never really thought of it that way. I, I guess I never really made it to anger. I'm just kind of afraid. <laughs> well, they, what they did when you were a, a child, that was really scary. The way they terrorized you, followed you around, threatened to throw you out of the house, that's terrifying for a child. You were really vulnerable. Yeah. And especially because I don't know if I mentioned it, but like my mom threatened to follow me on campus and I had to like ask a counselor, like, is that even possible? Like, can she follow me between classes? And they're like, no, she can't. So that made me feel a little better. But yeah, because she said she had to protect her from me. And uh, it was awful. It was like the worst year of my life. I'm so sorry. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I was raised by people who were mildly homophobic in comparison to your parents, but still homophobic, very homophobic church, very homophobic, uh, you know, society of teenage boys around me in my Catholic high schools. There was some part of me when I first started having sex with dudes, that was like, fuck all y'all. I'm enjoying this dick. <laughs> right. Instead of like, yeah. Oh, boo hoo hoo. I have a dick in my mouth. Everyone told me this is wrong, but I can't <laughs> resist. Boo hoo. Part of me was like, you know what? I have a fucking dick in my mouth and it's awesome. And fuck all y'all. And you have no idea. And you were all wrong about this dick in the mouth thing. It's amazing. And that's where you to have that to, level. <laughs> that's where you have to get. And sometimes that's an act of will. Part of it though is allowing yourself to, you know, feel the fuck out of your feelings. You know, tell your boyfriend and this woman if you do and go through with this and decide to have this experience and go slow, take baby steps. Maybe that first time is just making out. Maybe the first time you guys are going to like be intimate, go to some like sleazy bar where people like grind on each other and do it in public. The first sort of like making out so that it can't progress past that. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, th those sorts of baby steps, bumpers for you, but tell them like, you know, this is on some level really tough and I might have a moment where I need to be comforted and, and hear that it's okay. And I need to know before we you know, all get undressed and jump in bed that it's okay if I have that moment where I need to hear that it's okay and that you guys are not going to be angry if we have to like have an ice cream break. Yeah. And, said, okay, cool. And I need to have a little bit of a cry. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking that if I am not perfect at it, then like I ruined it, you well, know? You like, perfect at straight sex the first time you had straight sex? First time you and a dude did it? Mm -mm. Right? No. Okay, so you're not going to be perfect. The, the, the problem with sex is always when people, you know, think it'll be awkward if they don't know exactly what they're doing. So they want to pretend they know everything they're doing and make it perfect. No, that always guarantees awkwardness and crack ups. Saying, you know what, I've never done this before and this is going to be a little awkward and I'm a little nervous. A, then if it's awkward and you're a little nervous, everyone's expectations were set to a point where you don't feel like you're disappointing everyone, you know, or ruining it. But I think you're less likely to feel awkward in the moment if you said, I, this might be a little awkward for me. Just verbalizing it can lessen the chances of things getting awkward because you have permission to feel awkward and then often paradoxically you don't. Okay, baby steps. That sounds like a much better idea than just holding everything inside forever. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And get angry at your parents. Write them a letter whether you send it or not. 
telling them that what they did was wrong. If you know, if you wouldn't mind your dad exiting your life, blow up at him on the phone about it the next time you talk. It's it's hard with family. Like I love my dad. Like you know, I don't. That's why I say I, if I you him. don't mind if he exits your life. If you do mind and you just want to eat this to keep the peace or keep what part of him in your life you'd like to have in your life, I respect that choice, and you can make that choice. That's Thank a, you. that's why my first option was write that letter, whether you send it or not. Okay, that's probably a good idea to just write it and then like burn it or something. Yeah, or file it away because you might change your mind in five years and want to send it then and not have to start all over. That's true. Good luck. Enjoy that. You know what? Stop being cheated of this experience that you want to have, of, of your capacity to be you know, sexual and attracted to other women. Your, your parents took that from you in a violent way and you need to seize it back. It's yours and you have a right to it. Well, thank you so much. I don't know why. I feel so much lighter now. <laughs> thank you. Enjoy. Baby steps. I think, bye. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgender female living in the Midwest. I recently started dating a man um, who told me that he is bisexual and cross-dresses. Um, when he shared all this with me, I was kind of surprised after knowing him, but um, I was actually very aroused. And I find the whole thing very sexy, um, fantasizing about him wearing women's clothes, even him having sex with other men. So there's no issue with that. And we talk about it a lot. Um, really great communication. But my question for you is, I fear that I am beginning to eroticize this man and kind of only seeing him through this one lens um, of his life, which I think is kind of unfair. And I want to, you know, get to know him as a complete person. And, um, you know, we are hoping to eventually be in a relationship. Um, so it's not just completely sexually motivated. But then I also wonder, am I overthinking this? Because if this were just a heterosexual man that I was sleeping with, I wouldn't be questioning whether or not I was over-sexualizing him. So this has brought up a lot for me and, you know, my sexuality and things that I didn't know about myself. So I guess I'm just looking for maybe some advice or your take on it and how to navigate the situation where it doesn't become ruined. All right, I need you to turn around. See that tiny pinprick of light behind you? That's your asshole. You have crawled so far up into your ass, you have disappeared. You need to crawl back toward that pinprick of light and crawl the fuck out of your own ass. You are dating a guy who's a cross-dresser. He is excited about cross-dressing. You are have realized that this excites you too. You have this in common enjoy it. He is probably psyched that you are not just into him and therefore willing to tolerate, but into him and Yahtzee into this too. This is, should be filed under not a problem, except perhaps that the culture has beat it into you that you should be self-conscious about sexualizing your partner in ways in which he wants to be sexualized and has probably longed to be sexualized by his female partner all his life. That's okay. You aren't sexualizing your partner in an inappropriate manner. You are meeting a deep-seated need of your partner's. He's probably psyched at how affirmed he feels by your, not just, again, willingness to tolerate, but the fact that you are into this. It'll be easier for you to enjoy it and indulge him and get into it if you get the fuck out of your own ass. Stop worrying about it. Stop wringing your hands 
Go buy him some panties that you want to see him in and enjoy. Finally, you seem to think that there's something at cross purposes about enjoying this and getting to know him, as if you can't do both at once, as if enjoying this isn't an important part of getting to know him, just as if he was a completely vanilla straight guy, enjoying his sexuality and whatever appealed to you about him would be an important part of getting to know him. Don't worry about it. Stop wringing your hands. Crawl back out of your own ass. Enjoy. Hi, Dan. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on exchanging or giving gifts to a fuck buddy or a friend with benefits type person. Obviously, I know it's one of those situations where I can just open my mouth and ask the other person, but what are your thoughts? Is it weird? Does it have some sort of implication that you might be looking for something more? Um, Yeah. What are your thoughts? Something small, something thoughtful, something you give that person without any expectation that they got you a gift in return, something that maybe you offered that person with the assurance that you didn't expect them to get you a gift and you're not angry at them for not getting you a gift. You just saw this and thought of them and wanted them to have it. Emphasis on something small. If it's a friends with benefit relationship, getting them a little gift, something that costs less than $25 that made you think of them or that you knew they would like. Maybe something that's specifically sexual. You know, if you have a friends with benefit relationship and your partner, your FWB partner, your fuck buddy, as we used to call them, uh, is really into cock rings or really into tit clamps, picking them up a cock ring or a tit clamp, I think that's appropriate. Picking up a tit clamp, of course, a pair of tit clamps, picking them up a cock ring or a pair of tit clamps is, you know, in the context or spirit of that friends with benefit relationship because that's something that you two can use and enjoy together. Getting them a car with a giant bow on it, inappropriate. Getting them something expensive or sentimental, inappropriate. But something small, something thoughtful, something that makes sense for the relationship that you have or can be enjoyed in the context of the relationship you have. If every time you get together with your FWB, you both have a glass of wine, getting them a nice bottle of wine for that next time, that can be thoughtful. So... I will allow it. You may get your FWB a small and thoughtful gift. Hi, Dan. I am a cis straight woman in my 30s living on the East Coast. My husband and I recently opened our relationship as I've always been curious about sleeping with other people, and he's actually away for work nearly six months out of the year. Part of our agreement is that I actually don't have to tell him anything about my various trips. And while I've told him about most of my experiences, I recently had a really negative sexual experience take place, and I'm trying to figure it out. I went to a Christmas party where I drank a lot in a very short amount of time and ended up blacking out. And the last thing I remember is a friend handing me a drink. And then after that, I've got nothing except for some like one second fragments. I remember making out with a coworker. I remember waking up and throwing up an Uber. I remember this coworker cleaning puke out of my hair. And then I remember saying my husband would be okay with me fucking him. Then I remember his dick going into my ass, which is something under sober circumstances I never would have agreed to. And the next thing I remember is waking up and like in an episode of Law and Order SVU with all my clothes on except for my underwear. Then I agreed to have consensual sex with this person because I literally did not remember what had happened just hours earlier because I might be an idiot. I don't think the other guy was sober enough to know what he was doing either. He couldn't even remember whether or not he came, let alone where he came or whether he used a condom. And I don't think he knows that I was blacked out. 
I just don't know whether or not to tell my husband what happened because this is a person he knows and I don't want my husband to get upset or to feel like he can't leave town anymore because I can't take care of myself or something. I mean, sure, I'm lonely because he's not around a lot, but opening our relationship was supposed to be about exploration for me and not to prove to my husband that I'm helpless and I can't be alone. Also, I don't know whether or not I was raped. Obviously, I consented to something, but I can't remember when or what or how of the any of it. This is a cautionary tale. This is a lesson that you need to learn. Don't drink so much. Don't drink so much at office Christmas parties. And I'm not saying this to you as a woman, although women are likely to be subjected to sexual violence. I think women should bear in mind that the more incapacitated they are in a place where there are people who might be tempted to prey on them, the easier they are to prey on. I say this as someone who had to learn this lesson himself, himself. I got shit-faced drunk in a gay bar like Four Long Island iced teas in the 80s, a million years ago, and learned a lesson, which was I shouldn't drink so fucking much. I shouldn't make myself that vulnerable in a room full of people that I barely know or don't know. And I can't say that I've maintained a perfect record over the ensuing decades, but I haven't ever had four Long Island iced teas in 45 minutes ever again because I don't want to incapacitate myself. Because I don't want to make myself easy prey. You ask if you were raped. You ask me if you were raped. It sounds like you feel that you were violated, certainly. You have memories of engaging in sex acts that you wouldn't have engaged in sober. But you also know that you were blacked out. And you also know that the other person in the room was just as incapacitated by alcohol as you are. And all that adds up to you'll never ultimately be able to know whether or not you were raped. Maybe he was faking it. Maybe he was stone cold sober and preyed on you, but never be able to determine that with any certainty. As for whether you should tell the husband, you say you have an open relationship and you aren't obligated to tell each other about your adventures or in this case, a misadventure. I don't think that you should tell your husband if you can, without his support or without him badgering you about it, really commit not to get this hammered again in the future. You know, there are people out there who will consent when they're drunk to sex acts or consent to having sex with certain people when they're really hammered that they wouldn't consent to or people they wouldn't want to have sex with when they weren't so fucking hammered. And the takeaway there is don't get so fucking hammered that you end up doing things or consenting to things or finding yourself in circumstances where you're filled with regret and self-loathing and doubt afterwards. Alcohol is the problem here. Alcohol was your problem here. It sounds like alcohol was that guy's problem that night. The good news is that there is something that you can do or not do about this. You cannot drink so much at parties in the future with or without coworkers, or if you really want to get fucking hammered, get hammered at a time, get hammered in a place, you're not going to have sex where sex is impossible. Get hammered in convent. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I've been recently dating after a long-term relationship and a really long-term where I haven't dated very much in my 20s and I'm 30 now. So the thing is that every time I try to break up with someone or end something, even after a few dates, I feel so guilty. I feel so bad and it hurts me and I 
and I feel really bad for the person and it's kind of an emotional turmoil that I go through when this happens. Do you have any advice for someone who's not so experienced in dating and, you know, what the proper etiquette is or, you know, how invested you should be after a certain point? Just don't ghost. Use your words. I think it is perfectly legitimate if you've been on one or two dates with someone and you don't want to see them again to send them a direct message, send them a text, let them know you enjoyed getting to know them and that you think they're a wonderful person and that, you know, if the situation ever arises, you will vouch for them. You know, if circumstance should throw them together with a friend of yours, you liked them and you'll say so. But end it. Say that you are not interested in pursuing this further and wish them well. Just be clear. And rejection is part of it. It's the cost of dating freight. People are going to be rejected. And people who get online, people who date people, people who go on one or two dates know they're risking rejection. And if they have a baby-ass reaction to you being honest and straightforward, and please be straightforward. Don't be ambiguous. If someone, some dude has a jerky reaction to you being straightforward, well, they've just demonstrated that they weren't somebody that you should have been wasting your time on in the first place. Certainly not somebody that you want to see again because they're having a fit after you ended things clearly, not ghosted, sent a text, sent a DM, made a call after you determined you weren't interested in them. And the issue here is rejection. Nobody likes rejection, but also as demonstrated by your call, meeting out rejection can be difficult too, can make a person feel bad because you empathize with the person on the receiving end of your rejection. So you want to be kind. And that also means being straightforward, direct, and unambiguous. If you keep going out on dates with somebody because you're afraid to tell them you're not interested in seeing them anymore, they're going to make the perfectly reasonable assumption that you're more interested in them than you actually are. And they're going to become more invested in the relationship and begin to hope. And then when they find out that they shouldn't have made that investment, that their hopes were for naught, they're going to be even more hurt. But there's no way to avoid the hurt that you're going to meet out. If you know, you've been on one or two dates with somebody and they want to see you again and you don't want to see them again, that's going to suck for them. Might help if you tell yourself that your rejection, your releasing them when you are not interested in them, ups the chances that they will find themselves on a date with someone who is interested in them. If they pass up someone who just contacted them on OkCupid or Tinder or whatever because they are seeing you and are filled with hope about what's possible with you, well, the person that they passed up might have been the person that they really clicked with who wanted them in the same way that they wanted to be wanted by that person. So as much as it sucks by exiting someone's life when you're not interested in them, as painful as that might be for that person and as much of a credit as it is to you that you empathize with that pain that you are causing, freeing them, letting them go means that they can get out there and find the person that they need to be with, the person who wants to be with them. As soon as you determine that you are not that person, you are not the person who wants to be with them, say so clearly unambiguously, very important, particularly for people who are dating men to be unambiguous. I am not interested in seeing you again. It was nice to meet you. Good luck out there. If they argue, block. 
Hi, Dan. Uh, 32, straight male, living in the Midwest. So it's a tough question. Uh, having kids is something I made sure that my wife and I agreed on before we got married a year ago. However, she recently revealed that that's uh, no longer something that she wants to do, uh, citing reasons, you know, worried about what it would do to her body, how it would change her lifestyle, whether she's fit for motherhood. You know, she has um, a history of depression. She's on a number of medications um, that she's uh, worried may be incompatible with pregnancy, uh, though adoption is something I'm open to. And and then she's also worried uh, about what kind of world her, her child would inherit with the way things are going. Uh, and I respect all these reasons. And, and of course, it's her uterus. But nevertheless, having a family has always been and is still just very, very deeply, viscerally important to me. My question is, if we reach an impasse, you know, it would be truly awful for me to part ways with her. Uh, you know, she's the love of my life. I've never met anyone like her. And I'm really afraid that if I left her, that I would never find someone that would make me feel uh, the way that she does ever again. So as a last ditch effort to save our marriage, if it comes to this, I had this crazy idea, which is to stay married and have a family with another a partner that, you know, I might potentially pitch to her. We are open, though not poly, and we are moving to Portland next year. And if this could work any place on earth, it would be there. However, there's just a million concerns and pitfalls that come to mind with uh, such a complicated situation like that. And I'm just wondering if you've ever seen any successful examples of this kind of situation. If so, what does it look like? What are the rules and considerations? Could I keep my wife as a primary partner? Would that be unfair to the other partner and my family? what the living situation might be, or is this idea just inherently flawed and not worth exploring? There are certainly people out there who have open or poly relationships where they have a primary partner that they're married to, and then they have a secondary partner that they have children with. Often that secondary partner has a partner or partners of their own, polycule, polywebs work. And there are children out there who are born into polyamorous situations, polyamorous families, and they are fine and do fine. All that said, you're talking about a much higher degree of difficulty. It would be easier to give you advice about this situation than I think it would be for you to organize or execute this. And it might be easier rather than thinking about having a second family and another partner to whom you are committed in a romantic relationship and and committed as parents to think about being perhaps the known donor to a same-sex couple, to a lesbian couple, uh, and involved in having a parental role, but not being a full-time parent and, and forming a family and having children, children of your own children, uh, in whose lives you are involved and intimately involved, but in a different way. And the, you will meet all sorts of different families formed in all sorts of different ways in Portland. There's a large poly community in Portland. If you are interested in seeing how this might work, I would encourage you to get involved in the poly community when you and your spouse, your wife, arrive in Portland. You'll need your wife's buy-off. That's the first high degree of difficulty move you're going to have to make here. See how she feels about this. See how she feels about your proposal. It may be that she's not interested in, in this idea, in which case, if you stay married to her, 
it is a no-go. It would certainly, at your age, only 32 years old, perhaps be a simpler prospect for you and your wife, if you've reached an impasse on this issue, to part ways. Still love and support each other, but no longer be each other's partners and find new partners. But if you're interested in staying with your wife and having her be your wife and for you to be her husband while still having children of your own in whose lives you are involved, I would encourage you to think about a co-parenting relationship with another couple where you're the bio parent and your wife might be up for the idea of being an aunt. I'm not sure what that relationship would be, but it would be a way for you to have the kids that you want to have without requiring her to do anything that she doesn't want to do. Hi, Dan. I am a trans woman who has been transitioning for several years now in a relationship with a wonderful cis woman, and we are very much in love and are both working towards building a life together. By and large, our relationship feels very stable. Our communication feels healthier than any other relationship I've ever been in, and she has told me that she feels the same way. We both work hard to advocate our needs and establish boundaries when necessary, and we've built a lot of trust over the course of our relationship. Now, as a trans woman, I experience a significant amount of dysphoria fairly regularly. Sometimes it's just a small nagging feeling in the back of my mind and sometimes it can really ruin my day. I have not yet had surgery down below and I very much identify as a bottom, so this means a lot of anal for me. We're both starting to explore kinky things like role play, impact play, mild bondage, blindfolds, collars, etc. Now, 75% of the time, butt stuff works out great and there's no issues. I've been putting things in my butt for over a decade or for over a decade and know my way around that kind of activity quite well. That being said, few things aggravate my dysphoria more than when anal doesn't work out for me. We aren't living together and currently both have busy shifting schedules, meaning there are a lot of nights where there isn't time to prepare a douche until we're already hanging out. Sometimes I end up spending an hour or two in the bathroom getting ready, and if our time together that day is limited, that's an hour or two I'd rather be spending with my partner doing literally anything else. There are days when I don't even try for that reason. Ending up with shit on her hand or on the strap-on is my absolute worst nightmare and is sure to trigger a dysphoric episode. I have a pretty healthy diet and drink lots of water, but sometimes, no matter how much I plan ahead, it doesn't go the way I want it to. The end result here is that there's a good amount of times when I end up feeling sexually unsatisfied or caught in a depressive spiral because of body anxieties. Oftentimes, when I find myself in that kind of state, I have a tendency to shut down and not talk about what I'm thinking or feeling. My partner knows all about my dysphoria and the complexities of my gender experience, but I know that it's really hard for her to see sometimes. I know she wants to be there for me and hold me and make me feel loved and safe, but I also know that managing my triggers are no one's responsibility but my own, and the last thing I want to do is turn her into my therapist. I know she loves me and is here for me and definitely wants to fuck me and get me off because she's a total service top, but I feel like I need to be better at dealing with these feelings and situations when they come up because I can tell it's starting to weigh on her when it happens. I'm currently seeking a therapist, but finding an affordable therapist that's trans-informed has been quite a struggle. So I guess my question is multi-pronged. Are there any tips you have for a safer, cleaner sodomy that you can think of that maybe I haven't tried? Any thoughts on how to navigate triggers brought on by sexy or tricky sexual situations? Or if it's not working out, should we just engage in different kinds of activity? Um, or just any other thoughts or feedback you have? Engaging in different activities if it's not working out is 
a good way to manage your trigger. But if you discover it's not working out because there's shit on her hands or shit on her strap on and it triggers you, well, then it's too late. You're triggered too late to shift to activities that aren't going to trigger you. So you really do have to pick your poison here. Either you do need to do what you need to do so that you don't have to worry about it and you don't risk being triggered, which is take the time, the hour or 90 minutes or whatever it is for you to douche, to use an anal bulb and put some, you know, put that cup of water up your butt and then squirt it out and repeat and repeat and repeat until the water is running clear and then you can relax. And if you don't want to take the time to douche because you'd rather be spending that time with your partner, well, then be intimate without penetration. Get off in other ways. A couple of tips though, if you really want to skip the douching and you still want to be penetrated, instead of a strap-on that goes in and out of your ass or a dildo that's going in and out of your ass, get a butt plug that you put in your ass and it stays there. And there are butt plugs that have large flared bases. There are also butt plugs that have basically handles. So there can still be some movement and pressure instead of her taking the toy, using a strap on and it going in and out of your ass and kind of that plunger effect that if you are not douched or good to go can draw out what you fear. Uh, it provides you with that sensation of pressure and sometimes that sensation of you know being fucked without the in and out that can lead to disaster. You can also use a female condom, which you know, an ass can liner, a trash can liner that you put the condom in the orifice that you're going to penetrate. And then the toy or the dildo or the penis goes in and out of the condom or the fingers go in and out of the condom. The condom doesn't go in and out of the orifice and the fingers and the toys will emerge clean from the condom. And then you can excuse yourself after the play, after everybody's gotten off and go to the bathroom and remove the condom, turning it inside out as you do, and then tossing it. Possible to do that in the dark. Take it from me. It's possible to do that without even looking at the condom that you're removing, uh, and therefore then avoiding your trigger even more effectively if indeed there's anything on the condom. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about a subject that comes up a lot on the show and talk about it with an expert. Joining me, John Moe, creator of The Hilarious World of Depression, a terrific new podcast, author of a memoir by the same name coming out in May, and the host and creator of the late, great, lamented uh, NPR show Wits, which I was a big fan of. Hey, John Moe, how are you? Good, Dan. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. Um, congratulations on Hilarious World of Depression and on the book coming out uh, in the spring. Thank you. That's tremendous. Thank you. Uh, and I'm sorry that I've roped you into doing this. You were worried you might have to give <laughs> advice. You don't have to give advice. I just want to talk about depression. No, I was mostly worried I'd have to give advice about sex because <laughs> when the subject come up, comes up, I get all pearl clutchy and... Uh, and giggly. And so I, you know, I fear I wouldn't be of much use. So I imagine you don't listen to my podcast in front of the fam. <laughs> I, I, not in front of the family. I do enjoy it very much. And I, <laughs> and I now, now I'm hoping that clutching my pearls isn't a sex term that I'm unaware of. Pearl necklace is a sex term is a euphemism for something. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've clutching your that. pearls means what you think it means or what you intended it oh, to mean. Uh, all right. Let, let, let's talk about depression. Um, you, sure. you suffer from it. Um, I have been dealing with it for many years, yes. Can we quickly define terms, what depression is and what depression isn't? Depression isn't a feeling. It's not a big sad. It's something else. 
Yeah, it's not a mood. It's not a response to something. Like if you are, if you say I'm depressed because my team lost the big game, that's not the same thing. Um, that's probably just an emotional reaction or you know, possibly a healthy one. When we talk about depression, uh, we talk about it as a disorder, which means that it's a an ongoing uh, it's an ongoing illness that affects your ability to uh, function uh, in the world. So it's it's a disorder when it's making you show up consistently late for work or school, or makes you you know unable to uh, clean your house, that kind of thing. When it's when it's hampering. Uh, your day-to-day functions. And it can take the form of a lot of things. It's like where I got tripped up for a long time was like, well, I'm not sad. I don't even particularly care for Morrissey. So this can't be (laughs) depression. Um, But it can take, uh, it can take the form of, uh, you know, sapping your attention span, uh, having a, a hair trigger temper, um, a lot of things that just uh, kind of impair your emotional mood can often be linked to major depressive disorder. Now, the reason it comes up or the, the, the way it comes up most often on my podcast is that people are in what sound like not great relationships. And they will yeah. say then, my partner is depressed, you know, perhaps yeah. diagnosed clinically depressed, being treated for depression or has been diagnosed with depression, clinical depression, and refusing to do anything about it, not being treated. Yeah. And it's a relationship that the person who's calling me wants to exit and they feel like they can't. They feel like they'd be mm-hmm. abandoning someone at the worst moment of their lives and they feel trapped in the relationship because of the depression. Is it ever okay to leave someone who is depressed? I think it comes back to a sense of self. And and I hope this isn't skirting the topic, but but I've been thinking about this a lot. And uh, the depression can can drain you of the sense of yourself having any value, and so uh, you know you get you get uh, something good happens to you and you feel like you don't deserve it. Something um, good is happening to you and you think, well, this isn't this must not be a good thing if it's happening to me, uh, so it doesn't count. Like uh, for a long time, I would have jobs and I would think, well, if I'm if I'm in this job then it must not be a very good job. So I should go find a different job. Um, and so it's, it just diminishes that self. Um, and it, it, uh, it sort of becomes the, the illness becomes a bit of a parasite after a while, mm-hmm. uh, in the same way I think that addiction does. And so, I mean, I've had, um, I've had family members, I've lost family members to addiction and what always, uh, bothered me the most about it was, oh, I'm talking to you, but I'm not really talking to you, the person that I once knew. Uh, you're being controlled. You're a marionette of your addiction at this point. You know, it's it's lying to me. It's, it's lying to other people. It's doing whatever it needs to to get the alcohol, the drug, the substance, whatever it is. Um, and that's what's so vexing because it, it takes over the person so completely that it sounds like you're talking to them. So I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to tell people what to do with their relationships, but I think it's important to recognize when you're talking to your partner and when you're talking to the illness that the partner has. Uh Um, 
But and, I think and, and also, how do you distinguish that yeah. illness? You know, you describe you know what sounds like imposter syndrome. You describe feeling unworthy of a uh, of a job, or maybe there are people yeah. who feel unworthy of their partners. And how do you distinguish yeah. clinical depression, which is not depressed? I'm, you can be depressed about your team losing, but clinical depression. How right. do you distinguish that from your run of the mill self loathing or low self esteem? Um, I think you do it with the help of a professional, ideally. Um, you know, but there's certainly there's certainly information that you can that you can read about it to try to figure out uh, if you're if you're depressed in in the classical sense. I mean, to me, the the best barometer for a person to kind of self evaluate, if if that's what you have to do, is to look at um, look at the disordered and misleading uh, ways that your brain is operating. Look at the distortions, the cognitive distortions that are going on. And, you know, I, I think, if you could be objective I think a lot them. of, well, I mean, we hold them up to the prism of, of reality. And, you know, like I, I sometimes go through things like, uh, you know, I keep an eye on my own depression when it starts to lie to me, mm. when, when I think, okay, if I don't do all these things for my kids, then I'm a bad dad. And I have to say, hold on a second. Maybe I'm just an okay dad. And these are just things that I can or, or can't do for them. But maybe I'm fundamentally doing just fine because of the aggregate of everything in my life. Now, that took me talking to a therapist to kind of clear out. Because for me, it was it was all tied into having an alcoholic father who was often uh, sort of mentally absent from the world. And so I overcompensate by doing all these things. I'm like, oh, okay, that starts to unpack. And often, um, it with the help of, of a, a, a therapist who knows what they're doing, a good therapist that you get a connection with, you can sort of say, oh, okay, this is how I'm treating the world. This is how I'm interpreting the world. That's different from how any how I would interpret it for anyone else. You know, if I was looking at someone's objective life. So it's almost like you go into talk therapy to learn how to do that alone, to talk yourself out of the kind of negative feedback loop or or looking around for things to to feed into the, to the yeah. depression furnace to fuel it and to to I mean to reason with yourself yeah. to talk therapy yourself. I have a I have a good friend who. Um, She's in her mid thirties now, but she grew up with, uh, in her teens developed some really wicked eating disorders. And, you know, she doesn't say I've recovered. I'm, you know, I got over my eating disorders. She still has the eating disorder. She maintains, uh, you know, healthy eating habits now, but it's worked for her all the time. You know, every day, like I can just go get, get a bag of Doritos to her. It's a psychological exercise to get a bag of Doritos. And it's sort of the same way with depression. Like I, you know, I know people who've been, been diagnosed and have done things and have had life changes such that they don't think about it for years at a time. I think about it all the time mm -hmm. because I'm the, the depression tries to twist the world that comes into my brain and I have to untwist it. And your, um, and your you depression know, with, hasn't made it impossible for you to have a long-term relationship. You're in a long-term relationship. Yeah. I'm coming up on 25 years of marriage. Oh my gosh. Um, congratulations. Me too. <laughs> thank you. Congratulations. Coincidentally enough. Yeah. To the same person, which is strange. Um, you and I are both married to, no, that's not true. Um, <laughs> We're coming out about our poly triad. It's time that the listeners of NPR 
and to your podcast, <laughs> New the Truth. John right, Dan right, Savage, both married down. to Terry Miller. Yeah, no, I've had um, with with my wife. I we've we have a deep trust with each other, so I've always sort of counted her and my kids. Um, like it's almost like the depression has given them a pass. Like for my wife and my three kids, depression says, "Okay, they're cool." You know, we can trust them. That's fine. Um, but it's, it's really hard for me to form, uh, friendships like, like long-term close friendships, because when someone comes into my life who might be a friend, the depression says, Oh, you're going to, you're going to piss them off because you're, you, you suck or mm-hmm. they're going to piss you off because the whole world is, is full of terrible people. So there's a, a trust that I have to consciously overcome to get to that. And I think, I think a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I have depression. And so what do I do now that I have depression? And I'm like, well, you got to go get that looked at first of all, because it's going to be hard to form relationships. It's going to be hard to stay in relationships. Um, if that is unexamined, if that is, uh, untreated, I mean, and, and maybe it's from reading a bunch of self-help books, Maybe it's from uh, mindfulness and yoga and breathing. There's no perfect way that right, works right. for that, everybody. That's what you do if you have depression. And I bring up your your marriage of 25 years yeah. um, to, to show that you know someone who is depressed can be a, a good and loving partner and a long term prospect. You know, in, in the context yeah. of the show, often thing you know it can seem like everything is everything is shit because everybody who call people call in when they're having trouble. So I don't hear from people who yeah. are like, I have a relationship with a partner who's depressed and everything's awesome. Thank you for taking my call, Dan. I hear from people who are like, I'm in this relationship with someone who's depressed and it's a bad relationship and I want to get out and I feel trapped because they're depressed. What can a person yeah. do? And let's frame this in two ways. You have a partner you love and you don't want to leave who has depression. What can you do to be a supportive partner to that person? And what do you do if you're in a relationship with someone who's depressed and you want out and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the depression. You just realize that for whatever reason that they weren't right for you, irrespective of the depression. Mm. And you feel like you're going to make the depression worse or, or, or bring on a depressive episode. If you end a relationship yeah. that if the person wasn't depressed, you already would have ended. So it's sort of two questions. First, how do you support a depressed partner or a partner with depression? Sorry, I keep getting that backwards. Uh, if you, you love them and you want to be there and stay and how do you get out of it? If you don't, and you want to go. I think the way to support someone in that situation is to offer resources, um, whatever resources. I mean, everybody's got a different situation in terms of healthcare and, and, you know, where they live. And there's a lot of factors. You can become aware of what resources you can offer them and offer them all those resources. But I think one of the most important. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the most important things in, in mental health though is boundaries. You know, if, if you don't know how to counsel somebody, uh, to, you know, to really address the root causes of their depression, don't try because it's not fair to you and it's not going to help them. And so if you're in a situation where you've offered all the resources, you've done as much help as you are, as you are qualified to do, um, you know, it's a bit, again, it's a bit like addiction, like, like you can't make somebody stop drinking if if that's not 
something they're motivated to do. I mean, I've, I've tried to hector people into stop drinking. It doesn't work. And so I think knowing those boundaries and knowing what you're capable of and knowing what you're not capable of is, a, is self-preservation. You know, that's putting on the oxygen mask on the plane on yourself before assisting others. Right. And, and you're not, you're not and it, a terrible person if you break up with someone who has depression. You can prove you're, you're not a terrible yeah. person by, you know, doing a little legwork, finding out what resources there are available to your partner or your soon-to-be ex-partner, uh, you know, familiarizing your partner who has depression with those resources. But then if you need to end the relationship for other reasons or even for that reason, you yeah. can do that and you're not a terrible person. If the, if the person is incapable of providing any kind of support back and has refused the help to to get better. Um, I think that's I think that's completely justified to you know to to just take care of yourself because it's you can't let that person's depression that's diminished themselves to the point of of fading out. Uh, you can't let their depression do the same to you, uh, and it wants to. Depression wants to kill everybody. And so, um, you know, but, but you can't let it do that, uh, to you, even if it's happening to your partner, John Moe, host and creator of the hilarious world of depression, author of a memoir by the same name coming out in May. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was really illuminating and very helpful. Thank you, Dan. And, you know, no questions about, about boners or sex. <laughs> I'm so relieved. And John, before we let you go, fist fucking <laughs> best about practices, pro tips, <laughs> well, I'm certainly not pro tips, you know. I, <laughs> Amateur hours fine again, too, you know. Everybody's got to start again, somewhere. Again, go, go to the experts and therapists. What I say. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. This is a thirty-something-year-old from the East Coast, and I've been married for about four years now. And the past two years, we decided to go ahead and open it up. It's been great. It's been fun. I think the key is just constantly checking in with each other. But recently, I've been sleeping with people and um, my husband has been having a hard time not knowing the information. Like, I don't share everything. He knows that I am out with someone. He knows I'm sleeping with them. But he needs to know every single little detail, like what led up to it. Uh, who initiated this? Where did you do it? How many times? information about, you know, the other guy's penis. Like, it's, it's just a little excessive, like every single little detail. And now I'm beginning to feel somewhat uncomfortable. Not, no, not somewhat. I'm feeling very uncomfortable because I think that he should know if I'm sleeping with someone else, but he doesn't need to know all of those details. He disagrees. He wants to know everything. This is how he feels comfortable uh, processing everything. Um, and this is how he feels comfortable managing our open relationship. This really bothers me. It really hurts my feelings because I feel that he's asking all these questions because I don't think he trusts me. I don't know. It's just annoying. Um, I don't require the same information. I don't care if he started or initiated, you know, the fucking with someone else. Like, if you slept with someone, that's great. I don't care to know all the details. So you should respect my wishes and not inquire about mine. I just don't like it. I just want to know, do you think I'm, I'm wrong in this? Do you think he's wrong? Perhaps this means that we're not able to handle this, the whole non-monogamy thing, and 
maybe we should just close it off and just focus on each other. I don't know. If he wants to know every single detail, how you met the guy, how sex was initiated, what sex happened, even the details of his penis, if he wants to know all of that because it turns him on, then that's part of what's in the open relationship for him. That's part of his enjoyment of the open relationship. You don't want to know all of those details from his end, doesn't turn you on, so he doesn't share them. But if it's part of what makes the open relationship work for him, then you may have to find a way or a time where you can do the big divulge, you can do the big download. If you don't want to do it in person, maybe via email, if you're not comfortable doing it sober, maybe it's once in a while when you get high and you feel more chatty and like sharing. And then the compromise is he doesn't get all the details right away. He gets all the details in bursts at times when you feel like sharing them. If on the other hand, he wants to know every detail because he's stewing, because he's angry. If when you share the details of the interactions with these other people, he uses that against you, he gets upset, he weaponizes this information, then that could be a sign that an open relationship indeed isn't for you. You do need to get on the same page detail-wise. I think detail discordance is actually a thing in open relationships that isn't often discussed or acknowledged. Openness works for both of you. doesn't bother him when you sleep with other people. doesn't bother you when he sleeps with other people. But he has this desire to know everything. Makes him more comfortable, perhaps, to know everything or turns him on to know everything. And you want this zone of autonomy. You want some privacy and he wants transparency. And you know, his desire for transparency, I can see how that might annoy you and being deposed and grilled after every outside encounter. But you can see that from a slightly different angle where his desire to know everything is because he still regards your sex life, your intimacy, even when it's with others, even when you're not around or he's not around as an experience that you're both having as a shared sexual life that you two have forged together. So maybe if you can shift your perspective a little bit and see it not as a bad sign, but as a good sign. And if he can ease up and not demand all the details right away, but wait until there's a time, maybe at a time when you two are having sex together, if indeed this is a sexy thing for you guys to talk about, or at a time when you are just sharing and feeling really connected and you can be in charge of when you share all the details with him, knowing, of course, that he always wants to know the details, he chills out and backs off with the understanding that the details will come in time. But I don't think being detailed discordant, that he likes to hear them all, you don't like to share them all, means you can't make this open relationship work. Open relationships work because of communication, and that's kind of what he's asking for in a way, and because of compromise. So you two are going to have to forge a compromise about this particular kind of communication, the kind of communication he desires. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old female married 10 years. I recently come across some things in my home uh, that lead me to believe that my husband may be having some kind of affair. Um, I'm not sure if it's just a standard straight affair um, or if it's a gay affair or um, if it's just some items that are related to some new self-pleasure habits that I've never seen or heard of before. Uh, I came home one day to find uh, what appeared to be a typed breakup letter that said, you have no interest in me. I need a man who is there for me. It's been awesome. Goodbye. Uh, this letter uh, led me to look through his things, which I feel deeply sorry for. Um, but at the same time, I was terribly curious and confused 
And I did find some pretty alarming things in his workshop. And granted, it was a workshop, but (laughs) the items I'm about to describe were definitely not used in a workshop-y way. I found a pile of greasy rubber gloves that uh, seemed to have come on them. There was Astroglide. I found a used condom, lots of paper towels that appear to have feces on them. Um, I've also found evidence of holes being cut in the crotch of his underwear, empty wine bottles, which he does not drink wine ever. Like He doesn't even like it. And it was kind of expensive bottles of wine. I also found an extremely large collection of online saved online porn um, from sites. He's got five paid accounts, but it was all straight porn. And most recently, I found a couple of pairs of men's underwear that do not belong to him. I do the laundry. I've never seen these underwear before. They're quite worn and they just suddenly appeared. I've confronted him about the gloves and condom and he claims that he uses those for masturbation as his hands are rough. And he did seem to kind of have an explanation for everything, Um, but, you know, it all kind of sounded quite flimsy to me. So I just was wondering what your take on all of this stuff is. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be leaving him because I just can't really come to terms with this. But does does any of this sound like, what's your take? I mean, does any of this sound like he's exploring with gay sex or just a regular affair? Is this typical male masturbatory stuff? Um, I'd really appreciate your insight on this. I've had and I continue to have my fair share of gay sex and we typically don't leave feces covered paper towels strewn about the workshop, rubber gloves, empty lube bottles, underwear with the crotches cut out, wine bottles, alcohols we don't drink. That's not sort of necessary for gay sex to happen. It almost sounds like from what you've described that your husband is having fist-fucking scenes, incompetent fist-fucking scenes, because if you're doing it right, there's no feces, no feces, no Santorum and fist-fucking, just like no Santorum and butt-fucking, if you're doing it right. But that is certainly a mysterious pile of objects. So something is definitely up, and it sounds like you've already made up your mind to leave him because you don't feel that you can trust him and you're not satisfied with the explanations that he offered you. My Hail Mary Pass advice or recommendation to you would be to tell him that you are going to leave him because you don't believe him. Because the explanation that he offered for the mysterious underwear that isn't his and his underwear with the crotches cut out and the bottles of wine in his workshop when he doesn't drink wine and all of the detritus lying around just doesn't add up. And so that you know, the fact that he's offering you these flimsy bullshit explanations for all these different things that don't add up, the explanations don't add up, is undermining your ability to trust him and stay in this marriage. And then maybe you will get an explanation that adds up. Maybe you will get an explanation that connects the feces-smeared dots here. Maybe he is bisexual. Maybe there is some aspect of his sexuality that he is exploring out there. Maybe he is having an affair with someone who communicates by short typewritten letters only. Or maybe this is some elaborate fantasy that he has constructed for himself. And the wine bottles weren't for drinking the alcohol in them, but the wine bottles were insertable toys that he retrieved from somebody else's recycling bin. Maybe there is an explanation that adds up. Or maybe there is... A male lover, and he is bisexual, at least for 
Or maybe there is a male lover and he is bisexual and then you get to decide once you get the explanation that makes sense. It doesn't make you feel like your intelligence is being insulted and you're being played for a fool. Then you can decide whether you're going to stay in this marriage or not. But I think the only thing that's going to get the explanation out of him that makes sense is for him to know that this is it. That absent the explanation that makes sense, that doesn't insult your intelligence, you're going And the only possibility for keeping you there, for staying in the marriage, if that's indeed what he wants, is him fully disclosing to you, to your satisfaction, what is actually going on here. And the explanation that makes sense might be just him copping to not there being some lover who sent him this weird typewritten letter, although he's going to have to come up with an explanation for that too. But he might be one of those straight guys who likes putting stuff in his butt and he's been doing it on his own and hiding it from you because he's ashamed of it. And it's been solo play with the wine bottles as insertables. And that's just speculation. And I'm not going to connect these shit smeared dots for him. He's going to have to connect the shit smeared dots for you. Hey, Dan, I guess the way to put this is my boyfriend is kind of jealous of one of my closest friends. But what he doesn't understand is that I, this friend is not my type. He's very much so a gym bro and he likes working out and he's objectively attractive. Yes, but not to me. I'm into nerdy guys, which my boyfriend fits that picture well. He's has a slim physique and wears the glasses and all that jazz. And I love him. And I think he is the most sexy man alive, but he's so jealous of this person that he kind of won't ever hang out if we ever have the opportunity to hang out with him. And I just listened to your call about the boyfriend who's jealous of her old of his girlfriend's work friend and how you told him that he should just go out and get a drink with them. And I've tried to tell us to my boyfriend many times, just meet the guy. I think you'll really like him. He's funny. He's a jokester, but he's so obsessed with this idea that maybe like he doesn't even accuse me of liking him and it doesn't matter how many times I tell him these kind of guys are not my type. He seems to think like anytime there's a, I guess, what do you say? Like Metro attractive kind of guy, a guy that cares about how he looks and, you know, works out and blah, blah, blah. He feels a little threatened by them. And I, it doesn't seem to matter how many times I tell him that these men are not my type and he still seems to be threatened by them. And he doesn't understand that, I think only he is attractive. So we've had this conversation a couple of times and I kind of don't know how to get through his head that my best friend is not someone I'm into in any way, shape or form sexually. So there's no threat there. I recently told the guy in the column that he could accommodate his partner's irrational insecurity about some old photos that he'd saved by telling her that he'd deleted them when he hadn't because they were stored away on an old computer that he barely ever looked at, in files he never looked at, and on a computer that his girlfriend didn't have access to. So just tell her they were gone to you know, work around her irrational insecurity. He wasn't leaving her for these girls. He wasn't even looking at these old pictures. But he didn't want to delete them for sentimental reasons. Maybe he wants to look at them when he's 80 before he dies. Who knows? But this isn't a case where that kind of workaround is going to help because your boyfriend does have to look at this guy. He's your best friend and you'd like to be able to hang out the three of you and your boyfriend is threatened by this guy. And it may have nothing to do with your taste or preference 
in men. This guy sounds more conventionally attractive than your boyfriend. If your boyfriend's the skinny nerd with the glasses, maybe your best friend who isn't your sexual type is the type who used to torment and pick on your boyfriend. Those gym-going, muscly, well-dressed dude bros you know, in the cliche in Hollywood movie narrative, tend to pick on the nerds and the geeks and the thin guys with the glasses. And maybe that partly informs his dislike or discomfort around your best friend. It has nothing to do with whether you're going to run off with him and everything to do with it not being the type of person he's comfortable being around because of past experiences with other guys who are his type. And you can endlessly drill down on this with your boyfriend. You can show your boyfriend the pictures of every guy you've ever dated and they all look just like him. You can show your boyfriend all the porn you watch, which features exclusively skinny, nerdy guys with glasses and no muscular, well-dressed, gym-going bro guys. And it may never put his insecurity fully to rest. The workaround that you may have to deploy around your boyfriend's insecurity is just not asking him to hang out with you and your bestie for you to see your best friend that your boyfriend may come to understand, you know, in his non reptile brain, isn't someone that you're interested in sexually and isn't in competition for you, but never will understand his reptile brain will always be threatened by that. You may have to see him alone and that's good. It's good to have friends that you see without your romantic partners. It's, it's good to have some zones of autonomy. It's good to have a social life that isn't completely sort of folded together and enmeshed with your romantic partner. So every once in a while you tell your boyfriend, I'm going to go hang out with Josh or whatever the fuck his name is tonight. So if this was the night you wanted to see that movie, I didn't want to see, maybe you could go see that with a friend and just don't force them together. Let your boyfriend have his insecurity, offer your boyfriend all the reasonable assurances that you can, but don't lose your patience. If he can't get over is slightly irrational insecurity. It'd be helpful if he could acknowledge it's an irrational insecurity once he sees all the pictures of your past boyfriends and all the guys you jack off to in the porn that you watch. But he doesn't have to get over it for your relationship to be a success. You just need a workaround that accommodates it. That's sometimes what we have to do with our partner's irrational insecurities. Not cure them, not root them out, step around them. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Babylon Leather tweets at Fake Dan Savage on episode 687 of the Savage Lovecast. You used the term assless chaps, and all chaps are, by definition, assless. Otherwise, they'd just be leather pants. It's like saying roofless convertible. Just say leather chaps. Sincerely, a leathersmith. But assless chaps is just so much more fun to say than chaps or leather chaps. And usually when someone qualifies chaps with assless, what they mean are a certain kind of super tight, sexy chaps that are for sex and the kind of baboonish presentation of the ass. And assless chaps, when you say that, it does not call to mind those sort of cowboy leather duster chaps. It calls to mind a very specific kind of black leather popular with gay men chaps. You know what I mean when I say assless chaps, and I'm going to continue to say assless chaps. You're just going to have to allow me. The Vicky May tweets, I got the win I didn't know I needed while listening to the Savage Lovecast. When a caller asked, what do I do? I said out loud, run for the hills. Then at Fake Dan Savage said, you run. Is there anything more satisfying than this? 
I doubt it. And finally, Samuel K. tweets, Attention, Savage Lovecast listeners, you may be listening for fun, but please try to remember Dan's advice. It was only after I'd pulled out of a random hookup and was staring at the shredded condom on my dick that I remembered Dan saying once that coconut oil and latex don't mix. Samuel K. has zero followers on Twitter, so this may be the biggest signal boost I've ever given anyone. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, this call is in response to episode 689 with the woman who has the fetish for getting pregnant, even though she doesn't want to. I think Dan totally nailed his advice. Um, I've been in a similar situation, actually, where I was with a girl I hadn't known that long. We were hooking up, and she told me up front that she'd like to say certain things during sex, and she didn't mean it. And then I you know, hadn't experienced that before, but as we got into it, she started to tell me how she loved me, and she wanted me to come inside of her and make her pregnant, and it was so fucking hot, especially, though, because she had been up front about how like what we say during sex isn't what we mean after, because otherwise it would have been kind of strange given we just met. But because she put that up front, it was fucking amazing. So hopefully uh, the caller's boyfriend feels the same way. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the caller whose extremely bigoted sister was asking him to be the man of honor at her wedding. First of all, thanks for the broken toaster advice. I thought that was wonderful. I also thought maybe a piece of advice for that caller while he stays home and doesn't attend the wedding of this terrible bigot is to seek someone professional to talk to. What it sounds like he's experiencing is a grief for a sister who isn't there anymore. You know, this ally, this wonderful person that he knew before, you know, doesn't exist. And there's a kind of grief that goes along with that. And unfortunately, because of her choices to become a terrible bigot, that means that he has lost someone important in his life. And I think those feelings are really valid for him to work through. And Good luck to him, and I really hope you took Dan's advice and don't go to that terrible, terrible wedding. This is for the caller with the racist, bigoted sister. I think you should send them a letter saying, for your wedding gift, I have donated X dollars to the ACLU in your honor. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Better yet, use the voicemail app on your phone to record your question and email that to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hump, my dirty little porn film festival, is touring the country coming soon. In a theater near you, go to humpfilmfest.com for dates and tickets and more information. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow John Moe on Twitter at John Moe. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>